this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. Takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So when you go to sell your business, my guess is you're going to want an all-cash offer, right? So natural. I mean, you've had all the risk. You've shouldered it all up until now. And so if you're going to sell your business, you want to take the risk off the table. Unfortunately, on the other side of the negotiation table, you've got a buyer who's trying to do the exact opposite. They're trying to put as little cash down and try to get you to keep risk in the game in the form of an earnout or some sort of vendor take back where essentially they're lending you're lending them the money to buy your business. And that's a situation that Eric Weiner found himself in. Eric our next guest uh, built all location transportation a limousine and corporate transportation business up to 3 million dollars in revenue when he decided he wanted to sell. And of course he wanted all cash. His buyer however wanted to put half down in cash and 50% of the value of the deal into a 5 year vendor take back where he was lending the money to the buyer. I want you to listen carefully for his lessons learned about structuring the vendor take back because it's going to be an inevitable situation that in most cases you're going to have to lend some money to the buyer to buy your business. You want to minimize that and whatever money you do put at risk, so to speak, you want to have some sticks and carrots in place to ensure that you get that money over time. And here to tell you his lessons learned is Eric Weiner. So the only times I've ever been in a limousine is for like prom night in grade 12. And I'm so thrilled to have the limo guy on Built to Sell Radio. Eric, welcome. Hey, it's uh, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. You ran a limo company, right? So people rented out limousines when they had fancy occasions. I'm assuming proms was a big business for you guys, weddings. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, the... I grew up in northern New Jersey. I came to Providence for college and you know, I started this limousine company and one of the very first goals that I had was to bring the New York style black car transportation to the corporations of Providence because really all that existed were the big white stretch limos and it was 1990 and I could see that trend line coming that that corporate transportation was about to explode and I wanted to bring that to Providence. There you go. Cool. And so that's what you did. So how did it start? This is back in 1990. I mean, you obviously have to buy a car, I guess. Like, did you have the money to do that? How did it all start? Yeah. So the, the most interesting part of the story for me now, like thinking back to 1990, is kind of the narrative, right? It was pre-internet, it was pre-mobile phone. And so the first two things that I purchased was a used limousine for $16,000 and a mobile telephone for $2,000. Two grand for a mobile telephone, those were the days. Yeah, and it's it's fun. You know, I started the company the summer after my freshman year at Johnson & Wales University. And, you know, 
I go back to classes now and I speak and I ask people to raise their hand if they have a mobile phone with them. And of course, everyone's hand goes up, literally everyone. And in 1990, when I started the company, I was literally the only person on campus with a mobile phone. So the phone had you two had volumes. a mobile phone <laughs> and a limousine. You must have been the right. man. <laughs> yeah, right. I think I think that, you know, my sophomore year in college and junior year in college, it was a very different experience <laughs> for me. You know, and, and, and everyone knew it because the phone only had two volumes, which was loud and loud. You know, there was no vibrate. There was no silent. So I would sit in the back row of classrooms and the phone would ring and I would go out to the hallway and pick up the phone. Awesome. Awesome. That's wild. That's wild. And that, and that really was, that was the secret sauce. You know, the secret sauce was I would actually pick up the phone and customers on the other end would say, oh, it's, it's not an answering machine. It's not voicemail. I actually can talk to somebody. And that was really, you know, the springboard that, that, that started my company off was the idea that, that I was actually able to pick up the phone in this industry that was a lot of small, you know, operators, a lot of, you know, small entrepreneurs with one or two cars that had full-time jobs and were really running businesses around the weddings and the proms. Um, so if you were a company and you were calling a limousine company at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, it wasn't likely that you were uh, getting someone to actually pick up the phone. Awesome. So... <sighs> Talk to me about the development of this company. So the revenue model in seriousness was uh, obviously events. Um, how how did you grow it? Like what was the like what was the trajectory of your growth? I, I think one of the things for me um, that became evident quickly was that um, Providence was going to be a good place to be a big fish in a small pond. Um, so you know I you know was able to grow literally one car at a time. And I was able to find an immediate niche. You know, there really was an immediate niche of Providence-based companies that were um, using white limousines because they could not find chauffeurs driving other cars. So if if you were going to New York and you were driving in a black town car to a business appointment, you know, or using chauffeurs and then coming back to Providence, to only the closest you could come to replicate corporate transportation was in a white stretch limo. And it took me about a year to break into that market. You know, the first year was really just transporting, you know, fellow students and professors and um, to, you know, school events and doing weddings and doing proms. But it was clear to me that by having that phone and being able to answer those occasional corporate calls, that the model was going to be to be the first person in the marketplace to say, hey, yeah, we have a regular four-door sedan. We have a regular town car. We have a black limousine. Um, and you know, my first purchase was a white stretch limousine. But for 15 years after that, every single car that was added to the fleet was not a white stretch limousine. They were regular silver or gray town cars or black limousines. And we were the first person, people in the marketplace to recognize that 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 corporate you know model was gonna gonna you know flow out to the entire country and we'd be the first people doing it in providence neat so what were the inflection points for you i mean you mentioned when we were off air that 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 you sort of evolved the company away from you know uh limousines and you sort of broadened it maybe just describe that that sort of pivot yeah so the 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 pivot was really you know about uh, 20 months into business, I was sitting, you know, in an economics class my junior year at Johnson Wales University, and the phone rang, and it was on low. And I went out to the hallway, and it was a local corporation that said, "We're looking for a new transportation company, and we don't want white limousines." Mm -hmm. And 
can you handle us? And I said, well, I'd love to come in and talk to you. And it was also, you know, you know, going in for that meeting, I think, you know, it was a, a binder presentation that I put together for them of all of the services that we could offer. And I think that pretty much on every page at some point in that presentation was the idea of, you know, price, you know, that will beat people's price. And I sat down with them and and they asked me every question under the sun about how can they reach me? How can they reach the drivers? How am I going to guarantee it won't be white limousines? And I walked out of that meeting thinking I was so concerned about price that they never asked me about price and they were concerned only about the service and not about the price. Hmm. Um, and it was really at that moment, you know, when I got that account and when I realized that the marketplace was ready for a high level service provider and that I didn't have to worry about the price that the competitors were charging, I just had to worry about the service that they weren't able to deliver. How big did you get the company, Eric? Like, what, like what was the revenue by the time you wanted to sell? Yeah, so we we basically over the course of twenty years grew at a uh, a car a year. So I started in in September of nineteen ninety with one car, and in January of two thousand ten, when I sold the company, we were operating uh, twenty five vehicles and uh, just shy of three million dollars a year in revenue. Got it. And so is it like a trucking company where where the car is actually owned by an independent contractor who kind of contracts with you or or did you guys actually own the car and just hire the driver by the hour or whatever? Yeah. So it was one of the decisions that I made early on that, you know, that in order to maintain the level of control of the service and to have uh, chauffeurs, you know, do the type of job that I wanted, that all of our our cars were company owned and all of our drivers were employees. And, um, you know, it was a differentiator in terms of us being able to, you know, stand behind the service levels and make sure that the cars were maintained in a certain way, that they were certain colors, that they were cleaned and, and, and mechanically sound and that the drivers went through a very, you know, strict chauffeur training program. Um, but it added a significant expense line to our, um, you know, to our profit and loss because, you know, those competitors that were using independent contractors were really saving a lot of money, but, you know, we were really able to, um, you know, outperform them when it came to the service levels and what we could offer the clients. Sure. So at 3 million, what was your kind of roughly your profit pre-tax on that? Yeah. So it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a tough business. You know, the, the, you know, the expenses grew very quickly. You know, I would say that the most profitable limousine companies at the time we're probably earning, you know, between 15 and 20%. And we were probably closer to seven or eight, um, you know, not, a, not, not great margins. Got it. Got it. So kind of roughly 250 grand a year ish. Yeah. Maybe somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. Exactly. Got it. So, uh, it is a tough business. So gas, insurance, drivers, the cars, like, like what are the biggest expenses? Yeah. And, 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 you know, when we transitioned from being a limousine company to a transportation company, you know, and especially as, you know, more people were using, you know, technology with mobile phones and internet, there was an expectation from our clients that we'd be available 24 hours a day. So, you know, we went from limousines to, you know, corporate vehicles and, and, and answering the phone 24 hours a day and having a staff available 24 hours a day became an important part of the, um, formula for us. And then that really turned into our clients, you know, and, 
looking at national brands of saying, you know, these, there are limousine companies that have offices in 20 cities. You know, we want you to be able to do the same thing. You know, when we're traveling outside of our home area, we want to make one call and have you make the reservation everywhere. So, you know, managing those logistics for those customers weren't just about the rides that the, of them in the car in Providence. It was about having a car for them when they landed in, in Chicago and then Shanghai and back to LA and, and then to Boston. So it was really, um, a pretty, uh, you, you know, it was clearly a, a 24-7, 365 operation for, for every day of those 20 years. And so at what point did you decide that you might consider selling it? So I think, I think for me, it was, it was a real, it was very personal. You know, I started the company when I was 19 and, you know, over the, the first 10 years of the company, everything was new and fresh and exciting. Um, and then, you know, it started to become a transition away from, you know, being able to do the things that I really loved and enjoyed in the business to the things that needed to get done. And, and when you start getting into, you know, 10 and 12 and 15 cars, you know, I was spending more time on, on HR related issues. And I think at about year 15, you know, I, at that point I was, I was just shy of 35, you know, I started to have this, uh, a, maybe just a little bit of anxiety about the idea of, am I going to be doing this forever? Like I'm, I, this is all I've known since college. I've never worked for anyone else. You know, I've never really owned another business. Um, and I think that when I turned 35, I started thinking about, do I want to do this, be doing this when I'm 50 or 45? And I started thinking about the idea of, you know, I'm going to turn 40 and that'll be 20 years in the business. And that might be about the right time that I want to get out. And so as I was having those thoughts and conversations with myself, you know, the economy started to turn in 2008 and it became crystal clear that that. I have two choices. I'm either going to decide to completely reinvest myself in this company and go through this downturn and really start working more hours again, start, you know, rebuilding new markets, or I'm going to think about whether or not I want to get out and not rebuild. And I think that those were the, the things that really led to me starting to think about selling the company. Interesting. And so what was the next step? I mean, did you hire a broker? Did you get an offer? Like, how, like what was the next sort of practical step? Yeah. So it, you know, for me, the next practical step was a little bit of a challenge because, uh, it's, it's a very small industry. Um, and I was doing it in a very small community. Uh, and, and, you know, really, you know, it, it's not, you know, there was some consolidation starting to go on around the country. And, you know, when you'd go to these, you know, annual or biannual limousine shows and trade shows, you know, all the all the chatter was about, you know, people that were getting out in fire sales, you know, that the economy was turning and these bigger, larger companies out of New York or Boston were buying up these small companies. And um, there was a lot of talk about who was going to be next and who was healthy and who wasn't healthy, you know, and, and my motivation to sell was really just, you know, timing for me. And I knew that if I started to shop it to some local limousine companies, the word would get out quickly to our clients. Um, I, I knew that if that if I were to talk to a couple of the large companies around the country, that they'd only be looking for a fire sale. Uh, so I struggled for a, a while of, of trying to uh, find the right way to present what I was looking to do. And what I ended up doing was going to not really a broker, but um, but an industry consultant. You know, there was a, a guy at the time who's since passed away that did, did a lot of focus groups with He'd put together 10 or 15 limousine companies and he would sit down with them three or four times a year. And I went to him and I said, you know, Tommy, I really am thinking about selling. I think I'm really ready, but I want to do this in a way that's that's not going to hurt my existing client base and it's not going to 
you know, risk the brand that we've built. And, you know, he shopped it quietly to, um, you know, half a dozen people he had relationships with. And one of those relationships turned out to be a, a really good fit for us. Hmm. And so walk me through the next step. So Tommy's out there having some quiet conversations. Somebody came forward. Did they, did they then approach you with an offer? Did you get a phone call? Like, how did, like, how did it actually kind of... Yeah. So, you know, so, so, so he actually ended up, you know, negotiating the first two or three steps, you know, I, you know, I, I asked him to, you know, do a little due diligence to make sure that the, the buyer, you know, wasn't just kicking tires and, and had the financials and the financing and was ready. Um, you know, I had some, um, you know, concerns about, you know, making sure that the the business would at least continue on so that these clients, many of who I had had for 18 or 20 years, you know, would still have their meets net. Um, so, you know, so he was really able to, you know, without even ever exposing, you know, my company, you know, like he was shopping, you know, I have a local limousine company, a transportation company that's within 150 miles of you. They do, you know, almost $3 million in sales with 20 vehicles, you know, and, and it wasn't until, you know, he was able to vet that, that buyer for me to get me comfortable that the buyer even knew which company he was talking about. Um, so Tom got us through those first couple of stages and then, you know, and then we started to sit down, um, you know, with our lawyers and it was a pretty, a pretty quick and painless experience. Um, so did you quickly end up negotiating with one company or did you have multiple bidders at the table? Yeah, it was one company, you know, it was, uh, you know, again, at, at the time, you know, in late 2009, you know, I, I knew from the, the, the companies that I had talked to that had sold and the companies I knew that were out there buying that, that most of what was going on were fire sales, you know, that, that, that the companies that were buying were really, um, you know, buying below market value in my opinion. And, you know, when I had this buyer who was someone that was running a much smaller company that was looking to grow quickly and had the financial means to do it. Um, and I was in the position where I was I was more concerned with wanting to get out relatively like once it was in my mind, you know, when we hit, you know, September of, of 2009, once it was in my mind that I was ready to sell, you know, the idea of going through a longer due diligence process with maybe a bigger company that had more financial concerns was was less important to me than finding someone that was really interested in just buying a company. And I, you know, I may have sold my company for slightly less than I could have if I had gone through a longer, more arduous process, but I was ready to make that trade off. And so how did you, how did you come to some conclusion as to what you thought your company was worth? I mean, was Tommy giving you some advice on that or? Yeah. So I, you know, it was really kind of organic, you know, at the end of the day, you know, in my mind, I made a decision of what I wanted to walk away from the table with, like, I knew what the debt was. Um, you know, I, I knew that, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to walk away with a specific number in my pocket and that I was willing, you know, to stay involved for a certain amount of time. And, you know, as long as that number could be met, um, I was going to be happy, even if it was a little undervaluing the company. And I think the buyer, you know, in his mind said, I'm willing to spend X amount of dollars for a company and wasn't really, um, looking at the value as much as this is the number that I can spend. And I think that those two numbers happen to be relatively in line with each other. We, we, we had a, some sticking points and some other negotiations that was pre pretty interesting, but, but, you know, I really was most concerned with what, you know, I'm going to get out of this company after 20 years, this is what's going to be in my pocket. And that's really how we valued the company. So how much debt was on the business? Uh, it was about, about $350,000. 
Got it. And so what did you need to to clear after paying off your debt for you to feel happy with the deal? Yeah. So in in my mind, you know, I I really wanted to walk away with about half half a million dollars in my pocket. Got you know, it. That that was that was a, around where I was at. And it was an interesting internal conversation for me. You know, I went I went back and forth a lot you know, feeling like, you know, gosh, I've been doing this for 20 years, you know, at the end of the day is having half a million dollars in my pocket, you know, does that kind of equate? Is that enough cash for what I've done? And I think when I thought about it just in those terms, it was a little disappointing. But when I thought about it in 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 broader strokes, which was, you know, I started this business when I was 19. You know, I've had this incredible freedom and flexibility for 20 years. You know, I've accumulated some other assets and process and 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 um, properties along the way. And I've done something that I've really enjoyed, and now I'm going to walk away and be able to do something else as opposed to sticking with this business through a really difficult – and I'm selling this in a, in a down economy. You know, when when I we closed in January of 2010, that was the, the height of the downturn in the economy. So so those things really, you know, balanced, its, balanced themselves off really nicely for me. And did you reveal to the buyer what your number was? Uh I did not, and to be honest, I, I, I'm trying to remember where we start, what our starting point was. I think that, uh, that, that he insisted on us giving him a number first, and we gave him a high number, you know, and and a lot of the negotiations came back around to, um, you know, how long my consulting contract would be and how long he would pay off. Uh, the sale and the monthly payments. Uh, it was it, it. It very quickly became less about the overall amount and more about how the deal was structured. So, what was the overall amount that that you guys settled on? Uh, it ended up being just under a million dollars. After which, you then would have to pay back the the debt. Right? Correct. Yes. Got it. So, so you've got this offer, and and it doesn't sound like it was a hundred percent cash. It was sort of staggered payments. Maybe walk us through. What in what what was he or she proposing to to the deal terms to be? Yeah, so the 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 deal terms were uh, uh, just about fifty percent at the closing, uh, and then the rest were uh, monthly payments that were structured over five years that were a combination of um, you know monthly payments, a consulting fee, uh, you know healthcare, and um, you know access to continued transportation. Um, so it was a it was really a five year structured plan in in two or three pieces, and and a, a component of that was you know one of the things that we did have to kind of go through is um he didn't want to buy the entire fleet so we had to go through the entire fleet of 25 vehicles and determine which ones he wanted to either purchase or lease for me and which ones I was going to keep ownership of and sell um separately and so that was that was probably the the most complex part of the deal for me was was you know having to sell off some of the assets individually from some of the cars that he didn't want but then part of the the structure of the of the deal was that he was leasing a certain amount of cars for me for the next two or three years as well so how many of the 25 or so cars did, did you end up having to sell on your own uh, I believe that he took 12 or 14 of them and the rest of them that I sold on my own got it got it got it Interesting. And so what were the, the biggest sticking points in the negotiation? What, what did you guys have trouble working through? Uh, I think the, the, the biggest sticking point for me was that I would have been really happy um, 
of just being out within a year, you know, that I would have been happy if we could have, have structured the entire deal so that it was over in a year in terms of the payments and the consulting and everything. And he really wanted a, a, a much longer agreement, you know, close to five years. Um, and uh, it was something that he really wouldn't budge on. Um, and so, you know, we were able to, to, you know, where that negotiation kind of came out is that, you know, every time that he would insist on five years, you know, that I would use that as my leverage to get a little bit more value out of the cars he wanted to lease or of the consulting payments. Um, so, you know, it, it took me a while to reconcile the idea that, that, you know, I, I need to be involved one way or another for five years with this company after I sell it, which, I would have really preferred to have limited to one or two or three years. Uh, it's been seven years since you yeah. sold the business. How, how did the, the five-year period go? Did, did they make good on the payments? Yeah, he, you know, it, it, was, it, wasn't completely, um, it wasn't completely smooth, but at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the five years, he paid me everything that he had owed me. Um, I think that what did happen, you know, in the first – you know, 12 months uh, for sure. He saw me being involved in as a consultant and being there helping to be very valuable. I think in the second 12 months, you know, he thought it was pretty valuable. But by the time we got to the third year, um, I, I think that there was, uh, I think people had become a little bit nostalgic and, and missed me. I think it was, you know, employees and customers that had been there for 15 or 20 years started to miss me a little bit. And I think having me around at that point wasn't good for the company. So even though we continued to have this financial tie to each other and this this agreement for consulting, I think that, that you know, he probably li- rightly decided that it was better for him to pay me to not be there in those last, you know, th- 30 months or so of our of our agreement. And it, when you went into it, was it your assumption that that the heavy lifting would be in the first year, but by the fifth year, you wouldn't be doing much? Yeah, that was definitely, um, yes, that was definitely the way that we had structured the consulting piece of it is that the, the number of hours and the consulting would, would kind of wane down over the time, but that I would be available for certain things throughout. And really by the end of the five years, I wasn't, you know, I'd say the last 12 months, I really wasn't involved at all, you know. So did the buyer try to wiggle out of those payments saying, hey, Eric, I mean, you're not doing anything. I'm not going to keep writing you this check. Yeah, we we had some we had some struggles with it. Um, it, it was definitely uh, something that didn't go as smooth as I, I wanted. But to me, it was, look, you know, if if you want me to be there, I'll be there. But I'm not there because we both agree that you don't want me there. So, you know, we had those kinds of conversations. Um, and, you know, and like I said, at the end of the day, he did he did make the payments that were that were, were owed. And, and it wasn't, you know, all smiles and handshakes, but it, it was it was, you know, a, a deal that was completed 100 percent. What was your recourse if he had not made those payments? Yeah. So it was the biggest mistake I had, you know, um, you know, in you know, he, you know, looking back at the deal, you know, he, I knew that he had hired, uh, you know, a, a firm with really uh, good experience in these kind of deals. You know, my, I went into it with a, a way uh, less formal attitude. And when I went back a couple of times and looked at the contract, I didn't really have a lot of great recourse. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there were no real fines or, or, or interest payments built in for late payments. Um, you know, the, the, the recourse was really all or nothing. It was either go after him and try to take the company back or 
you know, sit and play nice and try to get your payments. Mm. Um, and I think that that's the one thing that I really would have done differently is that I would have been better prepared to think, gosh, you know, if in 15 months he doesn't, you know, you know, the, the real, the, the only real recourse that was existing was in the first 24 months when he was making lease payments on the cars, I had the ability, you know, to repossess those cars. But after 24 months, the cars were all paid off. And if there had been a need, you know, for further recourse, it, that it was, it ended when the pay, payoffs of those cars ended. So what recourse would you have negotiated for if you had it to do over again? Uh, if I had if I had done it over again, I would have I would have built in um, late fees and 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 um, you know percent uh, fines for payments not made on time or for certain balances going over a certain amount of time. I would have I would have you know made sure that there was more of a, fu- a financial loss for for every single payment every single month not to be on time and you know and the later those payments would be the 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 you know I really didn't have interest in wanting to take the company back and I wouldn't have wanted to really play with that as being the recourse. So I would have liked to have just built in better financial penalties for for things that weren't on time on a regular basis. It's great advice uh, because oftentimes in a vendor take back, which is what you're describing, uh, the you know, the, the ultimate sort of hammer is that if you if you if you don't make the payments as the buyer, then the the, the old owner gets the company back. Uh, but that, of course, is not what the old owner wants. That's sort of a last resort, right? Yeah. And, and, and in this case, it, it, you know, you know, he had owned a very small, you know, limousine company himself and, you know, he merged the brands and he merged the clients and, you know, just, you know, and at that point, you know, there's some degree of negotiation or having to work with someone even to take it back. And, you know, that, that most certainly is not what I had wanted to do or what my intention would have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And and when you, uh, you know, the five-year, um, Vendor take backs a long as you as you point out it's a long time to 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 and and you push back on that. Would you do anything differently? Do you think it? Do you think he, he there was room to get him up to three years or something like that? Like in retrospect, I mean, I think in retrospect, the thing that I would have done differently is that when I you know when I hit that fifteen year mark and I had the the initial thoughts of you know I want to try to sell this company in the next five years. I should have pivoted quicker to running the business different. You know, I, that should have been the time that I thought about, well, if I'm thinking about maybe selling the company in five years, maybe now we switch from employees to independent contractors. You know, maybe we become a little bit less concerned with having, you know, 100% customer satisfaction and we go to a 90% customer satisfaction because it'll include the, the bottom line. Um, I think that if I had made some of those changes when I started to negotiate, with him, I probably would have been more comfortable to say, look, I, I've, I've got the kind of operation that I can shop to other people because I've now been running it as something I'm going to sell as opposed to having been selling a company that I built for myself. And yeah, I think sorry. I think that would have made a big difference. Yeah. So what other, what other things would you have done at age 35 to make it more of a sellable asset? So I've, I've captured uh, maybe making it going from employees to independent contractors. I've captured, you know, instead of shooting for 100% customer satisfaction, maybe shooting 90. What other sorts of things might you have done differently? I mean, I think that, that, that because of the circumstances of the way that I started the company and ran the company, you know, that I probably would have brought in some sort of outside consultant that could have helped me look at other things that should have, you know, it was a small enough company still, even with 50 employees and key employees 
that I, I couldn't turn to anyone on staff and say, hey, look, you know, we're going to start running this differently with an exit strategy. I really would have needed to continue to do that on my own. So I think that I probably, you know, would have turned to, you know, an industry expert or a consultant, you know, um, that could have looked at it with me and said, OK, you know, here are the three or four things that we can change in your financial model that will help, you know, help you look better when you're ready to sell. Got it. Got it. And so. You know, it's interesting that, that you had this kind of milestone birthday, like you wanted to be out by the time you were 40, 20 years running the same business. It, it felt like enough for you. Um, now that you've sold it seven years on, I mean, how do you feel about the milestone being like the birthday, that age being yeah. a triggering event? Was like, how do you feel about that now? You know, I, I feel like that the, the, pers- the perspective now is good. I, I feel like it was it, the combination of the, the milestone birthday and then the, the, the turn in the economy. Um, you know, I, I still have a lot of connection to the customers in the company. I still have a lot of connection to some of the employees that are still there. Um, and, you know, when I think about it, I think about it very fondly, but I don't miss it. And I'm afraid that if I had made different decisions and tried to work through the downturn economy and stick with the company for another five or 10 years, I'm not sure that those memories would be as fond as they are. I think it was really the, the right time for me, you know, personally, I think that those decisions were the, were the right time for me to leave and to be able to continue to feel fondly about it. Yeah. And what are you up to now? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting for me since selling the company was that, you know, your introduction kind of hit it on the nose is that, you know, for 20 years, I was the limo guy, you know, and, and, you know, I was very fortunate to run a business that, you know, it's not like washers or widgets where, you know, the community knows who you are. You interact with, you know, CEOs and celebrities and, and customers of mine ended up, you know, being governor and, you know, it was a very high profile business, which gave me, you know, just the good luck and good fortune to, to know a lot of those people. And I was very afraid, you know, that after I sold the company, I would no longer be the limo guy and I'd have to work, you know, really hard to be something else or to not be known as just a limo guy or that I would fade in people's memory. Um, so I did some consulting for, you know, a couple of years. And one of the companies I consulted with was a cookie company that wanted to kind of grow and, and, and make some changes. And I was shocked at how quickly people started to refer to me as the cookie guy. Um, <laughs> and when that ended, I started to identify the, the business that I'm in now, which was um, working with food trucks, you know, the, the, the food truck industry across the country to me seemed very segmented and it's very hard to find food trucks and where they are. And people are chasing down Facebook and Twitter feeds. And, um, you know, I decided to build a website that's a, a search engine and a locator for food trucks across the country. Oh, cool. Yeah. So foodtrucksin.com lists over, you know, 6,500 food trucks across the country in 1,500 cities. Um, you know, give it's primarily- Give me the URL again. Sure. It's foodtrucksin.com. Foodtrucksin. Okay. One N. Um, and that- you know, has led to me traveling around the country and meeting food trucks and learning about the industry in different cities. And I've then brought some of that back to the local marketplace here in Rhode Island. And I'm producing some local food truck events, you know, here on the ground. Um, And it's 
um, it's really fun now to be known as the food truck guy. Um, and, and it's, and it's, I think that some of it is luck, but a lot of it is also my personality and I've chosen these industries that are fun. You know, who doesn't like to talk about limousines or the talk about the one time they were in a limousine or how they want to be in a limousine and food trucks are really fun right now. But the thing that's most interesting about it to me is how similar they are, you know, like the logistics of managing a limousine company of getting to the airport on time through traffic and flight delays and is so similar to the logistics of operating a food truck and trying to get your food you know stuff prepped in time to get out to a lunch service where you're dealing with traffic or rain or a flat tire and you know the stories that 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 food truck owners tell me about the challenges they have I can completely you know immediately connect to because they're the exact same stories that I had when I had three limousines and the challenges of of having a mobile business is really you know they're very very similar that's wild well I wish you all the best of luck Eric Wiener thanks for joining us It was great being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.